How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 66 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. Now, today I thought I'd... Well, I thought I'd touch on this old... This old saying, this old quip that you hear all the time. One man's trash is another man's treasure, right? Now we all know what that means. You know, you go to a yard sale, you find that perfect thing that you didn't even know that you were missing, but it becomes your favorite you know, that, that distressed pair of jeans that fits just right from Goodwill. You know, maybe it's a pile of stones somebody pitched out of the back of a truck on the side of the road, but it's just the right amount for the project that you need. One man's trash. Now, I've mentioned before that I have an extended relative or an ancestor, you might say, uh, who's long dead, but who used to ship, he, he would dive for shipwreck timber up in Lake Michigan. And he would build things out of these beautiful oak beams, these big timbers. And I just so happened to be lucky enough to have inherited this this coffee table that, you know, I remember as a very young child when it was at my uncle's house. And I specifically remember laying on the carpet underneath this coffee table and playing with, you know, little action figures. And, and I remember just feeling so sheltered under this heavy table, you know, four inch thick by 12 inch timbers, two of them lashed together with metal sort of ties and, and it has anchor chain legs that are welded stiff. It's so cool. And I, I can't help but think how resourceful it was of my great, great, great uncle, however many greats it was, how resourceful it was to take something that, you know, was, was buried under the, under the water and resurfacing it and, and resurfacing it once again. Um, if you catch my drift, you know, he'd float these beams to the surface. He would, he would cure the wood, let it, let it age, you know, let it dry out. And then he would resurface it in the sense of sanding it smooth and applying a finish and sealing it, right? Preserving it. And he would put a, it would, you know, he'd put a little plaque on the table to identify the boat that these planks came off of. I don't think you could call them planks. They're rather large. They're definitely timbers. But the the plaque on on my particular coffee table here is it's I I hate to say it's a bit worn. 
I almost feel I should either, you know, restore this plaque or maybe have one made fresh. But let me, let me, I got to pause and I, I got to go read it. I can't read it from where I am, but I'll tell you what this plaque says exactly. Hang on. Okay, so it's funny. It actually says ship's plank from the schooner Metropolis sunk November 25th, 1886 near Old Mission, Michigan. So I guess they are ship's planks. They're rather thick for what you might think of as a plank, but you know, these boats were pretty large. Um, and I, I Googled the, the schooner metropolis and I did, I did a little research. Um, and I found this, this article written by a Jane Borsa Borsaw and figured I'd give it a read. It's called Misadventures Aboard the Metropolis. Originally published in Traverse City, um, the Record Eagle, North Seasons Supplement, August 20th, 1998. <clears throat> Snowflakes swirled around the hull of the schooner Metropolis as she pulled out of Elk Rapids late one night on November 26th, 1886, loaded with rough-sewn pine boards and pig iron. Had Captain Duncan Corbett known that this blustery night would signal the proud sailing vessel's last voyage, he would never have attempted this one last run to Chicago before winter set in. But the frigid waters of Lake Michigan beckoned and the 124.7-foot schooner set out on her journey only to run aground near Old Mission Point around 3 a.m. Captain Corbett and his crew managed to scramble ashore. Though there was a heavy northwest gale, an attempt was made to salvage the vessel, and a wrecking tug was brought in from, um, from Sheboygan. After two days, however, they abandoned the effort, and the metropolis would soon succumb to the crushing weight of the bay's ice. So ended her days on the Great Lakes. Dr. Wright, a local historian, an old mission resident, noted that although the metropolis seemed to be jinxed, maritime mishaps were common in those days due to the lack of modern equipment. The schooners didn't have the aids that modern vessels have now, he said. According to the Fredrickson's treasure chart of lost ships and cargoes in the Frankfurt, Michigan area, there were 202 maritime mishaps of one kind or another between Grand Traverse Bay and a little south of Ludington. Of course, 160 involved schooners or brigs sailing vessels of the 1800s. <clears throat> Many of the wrecks can be attributed to captains trying to make one last voyage before winter set in. It was their living, and they wanted to make their last voyage and earn that last possible amount of money. According to Old Mission resident Bill Hislop, all that remains of the metropolis is a, skunk, uh, a skeleton, keel, and ribs. 
on a clear sunny day she can easily be seen in her final resting place about 200 yards offshore before it became illegal to rob pieces of sunken vessels divers picked the schooner clean using the materials to craft everything from coffee tables to lamps Wright once received a gift of a pen holder with a wooden base reputed to have been from the metropolis Hislop used white oak from the hull to make flooring in a log cabin he built in the woods and a barn at the top of a nearby bluff was reportedly built from the vessel's cargo of rough sawn pine boards shortly after it ran aground the remains of the once proud metropolis now serve as home for rock bass Okay, I know that was a little bit long. I might, I don't know, I might trim it down. We'll see. But <clears throat> I thought it was interesting, you know. Um, I, I, I looked at pictures of what the old vessel looked like, and I looked at what remains of it. You know, it's a common kayaking destination, I guess, in that area. People will paddle out, you know, and... It's apparently not all that deep. It's only maybe 10 meters or so under the surface. And um, like the like the article said, you know, it's just a it's just a skeleton, right? It's the keel, which is the center sort of ridge beam of the hole, right? The, the, the spine and then the ribs coming off it. That's that's all that's left which I imagine they were just they were just too big to salvage, right? And I read a couple other articles talking about sort of how how it's such a shame that these shipwrecks weren't preserved for their historic value. And that these uh, scavengers who would who would rob the timbers off of these off these boats, um, you know, kind of spoke disparagingly of them, which you know made me really. I, I had to kind of think about it. Well, how do I feel about this? You know, was my great uncle, great 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 uncle, whatever the hell, was he just an opportunist? Was he a was he some kind of villain? I I don't believe so, you know. I believe he was he was a craftsman. And you know, the, what is what is the historic value of a shipwreck? You know, is it is it greater if the shipwreck is allowed to crumble and and I mean it's it's I I think the historic value of all these these pieces all these crafts that were made you know I know for a fact I don't know if it was from this same shipwreck but my my great 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 whatever um, he built a bar, which is still open. I want to say in Charlevoix, Michigan, or somewhere. 
you know, it's a really impressive bar, you know, and it's been well cared for and, you know, it's been a family owned business for however many years, over a hundred, 150. And I, I, you know, I, I took a little offense to the way some of these folks seemed to seem to insinuate that these these folks who would salvage you know what what equated to valuable material and and a frankly you know very unique material shipwreck timber and I read at one point that, you know, zebra mussels in, in, in modern, you know, years, if you don't know the zebra mussel, it's a invasive, uh, that has caused some trouble up in the, in the great lakes and they cause damage to these shipwrecks. You know, would it have been, would it have been better if, if my ancestor had left that shipwreck be? If everybody else had left it be just so that the zebra mussels could destroy the integrity of it and the historic value, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting just to think, you know, in terms of this trash treasure, right? You know, that, that shipwreck was, was written off as a loss, you know, it probably had a certain amount of insurance on it, if I had to guess. I, I could be wrong, but it was... Somebody decided it was trash, you know, after a certain amount of rescue effort was put in, and it was it was deemed not worth it. So it only seems natural that that people could then, you know, once it is trash, they could take that and turn it into into something else, into treasure, right? Into a hundred different pieces of furniture or home decor. You know? And it 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 got me thinking about other sort of issues where this this desire for historic preservation can often come in the way of of op, I don't know opportunity of in some ways um, I don't know progress. You know, I was driving through a a town. Actually, it's not a it's not a town. They've fought very hard to remain a village. Uh, but it's a place called Zionsville, Indiana. It's a very affluent area, very beautiful homes, very, very gorgeous downtown, um, very old. And there's signs up in a lot of people's yards that say, no historic district. You know, and I, I guess this is a, a, debated issue in this town. In fact, I think what I'll do now, I, I'm going to hit the pause and I just want to do a quick 
little search for this? Well, let's let's be clear. Um, so, the village is not a recognized historic district in the National Register of Historic Places, which is sort of the federal designation that can apply to an area. Um, it's certainly a collection of historic properties and would likely qualify to be designated if that's something that, that they decide they want to pursue. Um, Hunt Club Road is designated by the federal government as a National Register Historic District uh, as part of the, um, the whole Traders Point Rural Historic District. It came over 865. It includes everything up and down Hunt Club Road. So um, it has been certified as historic. So um, if the federal government has recognized that area as historic, I suppose it's <laughs> the. Well, no, I just mean, I think then it's up to the local community to decide if they, you know, concur and want to, through the town council, want to designate that area. And I'm sure, again, that is going to be part of many conversations that would occur with the property owners between now and then. So, okay. Something Mark said too when we were preparing is it could be a district of one too. So, I mean, we could have one or two historic houses in the town that could apply uh, for a designation like this. Now, I understand the commission will consist of five people, five voting members, and perhaps one other non voting. Um, you've talked about Hunt Club Road, perhaps single site districts. Uh, I'm obviously most interested in the village. Yep. And I suspect the village would probably constitute the greatest number of structures. Correct, that, that, that's my guess too. Yeah. How would you divide up membership on that commission? You know, it's How can we be assured that we're not gonna have one member of four people who are not villagers, essentially affecting our, our future? Correct, so a um, couple things on that. The state statute says the mayor has to appoint those folks. Um, our goal, I can't even say that because it's not my goal. It'd be her. From what I understand, the meetings we've sat in, they would want a disbursement of folks throughout the community. So I would hope that, and remember, whoever is proposed, it still has to be approved by the town council. So at the end of the day, I'm going to be very involved in how this gets selected, hopefully, to help, you know, uh, get a a good amount and we don't have all builders on there right you know you want architects you want builders you want historians you want um you, you know there's a i don't remember says it in here specifically but uh you want a well-rounded group that that should include people from each area of zionsville because this this commission's for the whole all of zionsville not just one specific district yeah because just to follow up on that john i think somebody could ask like you could be a resident in uh, the Club Road district and say, well, why would I ever want my neighborhood designated when they put four people from the village on that five member board? Do they really care about my neighborhood? I mean, I agree. you know, you, you, you could live in Indianapolis where they have a historic preservation commission that has 17 historic districts, but a commission of only nine members in a city of, you know, 800,000 people. So, who's representing who, you know, exactly, and whose best interests. I think we all have to trust that the people that 
the the mayor and the town council approved to sit on here are people that have an interest that are we have some areas of uh, sort of skill sets that are included in the ordinance that joe was just referencing like architecture architectural history uh, real estate whatever these various areas are that relate to what it is that the purpose of the historic preservation yeah yeah it says that specifically in here where you have planners um with tool shed or something like that be considered an accessory accessory structure would be I, I think yes. So, so I, I read uh, read through the ordinance as well, and it does specifically reference uh, viewable from the public way. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I would interpret that to mean that if you did have a shed and say you purchased your shed at uh, Lowe's or Menards, because um, you can buy prefab sheds, right? I think if you place that structure and if it were permitted under the zoning regulations, if you were permitted to have that structure, if it were placed outside of the view shed, it would not be subject to the review of the historic ordinance. Mm -hmm. However, if it were, it would be. I mean, that that's my take on, that's my read on what it means. In other communities, I'm curious as far as significantly viewable. I, I don't know if that's the term to choose, but uh, it's, it's pretty hard to entirely hide everything. And we can see things from various angles. Like, I would assume there's some discretion on that as far as something that uh, you would have to look real hard for. That's not really a question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but certainly as, as staff, we would encourage the lack of discretion and make it as clear as possible, such as an in-ground pool. That might not be visible because it's that great. Um, the Board of Zoning Appeals has heard and approved at least two pools in the last 60, 90 days in, in, the, in the village area. So this is uh, a land use, an accessory use that might be a structure by definition, but is not visible when it's at grade and not in use. I don't have any real issue. I mean, we're talking tonight about a framework that if neighborhoods would want to be subjected to these rules, then they can, I guess, go through that process. I mean, that there's no, I don't think nothing inherently wrong with that. What I'm really concerned with is that the way that this ordinance is drafted, it's very one-sided against the homeowner and so what i'd like to see happen would be to make it more one you know to make it less one-sided make uh, make things reciprocal where they're currently in favor of one side or the other so let me just go through a few examples i noted um and i mean i guess the other issue too i had was as i read this and tell me if i'm wrong but the commission can essentially decide we want to make royal run or stonegate or whatever a historic district it goes to the council the council votes there's no voting of homeowners themselves like where if i'm in a neighborhood now there's no homeowners association in order to put one in place i would have there would have to be a majority vote of the homeowners and this is a lot of, could potentially be have much more restrictive rules in the homeowners association whereas here not a single homeowner in theory could be in favor but if the commission wants it the council wants it it's a done deal so i'd like to see some voting of the neighborhood that's at play i mean having that in the ordinance not just well i mean i know you guys will do that but you know what if you guys you know all retire go to hawaii you know the next regime or maybe you maybe they have a different approach it needs to be in the ordinance it needs to be a vote of the homeowners it's not in there right now uh first of all just explain the state enabling legislation upon which we model local ordinances does not require that action um so 
any municipality in the state of Indiana, there are about 55 that have, um, you know, ordinances of this kind already. Um, I would say probably the majority of them do not require that kind of stuff because they based it on that state enabling legislation. There are some that include that kind of vote. Um, I know Indianapolis does. Um, they are, I think, something like 65% support within an area to for the ordinance to move forward to council. Um, they have, uh, I think, done an excellent job, though, and it's the, all in the process. It's the education, the support you build. Somebody, you know, I'm sorry, but if there's somebody who's opposed to the idea of what this is here to do, they're going to be opposed to it till the day they die. I don't think they're going to necessarily ever be swung over. But if there are people who truly come into this, you know, kind of questioning, well, what is this? You know, how does this affect me? And might I see the positive benefits of what this is? And they can uh, be informed and then come along with it. Like in the Irvington neighborhood, if you know where that is in Indianapolis, they had 70% support in a neighborhood of over 1,500 property owners. That's a pretty significant effort to make and to, to succeed at. So um, even in places that have the, the threshold if you will, of votes within uh, an area, they can still be quite successful at achieving the goal. So, but you know, if that's really what you're asking for, that's really a decision here in this community, what you want to do. Um, I, I am sort of the opinion that I think your town council is going to look out for you uh, as property owners, and they're not going to be putting things into place that the members of the public don't want to see. Um, but, you know, again, I, I don't live here, you live here. And so you have to talk to your council members about what you want to see in place in an ordinance. And I think that's great what you explained. I mean, that to me makes perfect sense because I mean, we're ultimately talking and I mean, like I live in the village, right? It's a hotly debated topic. You know, I talk to my neighbors, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, you know, maybe half are for, half are against, half don't know, I don't know, but it's not a clear cut issue. And when we're sort of entrusting this distant board or maybe one designated council person to sort of take their, you know, you know, see what the weather is. I think this is what people want. I mean, we're ultimately talking about potentially taking away property rights. I mean, you buy a home with certain expectations and if 65% of my neighbors want it, that's awesome. Let's do it. But unless we have a vote, some way of knowing, I mean, right now, for the village project, there's been this, I mean, there's an organization who, I mean, they clearly have an agenda and they, put out a survey, it was, a, I mean, you can get a survey to say whatever you want. The questions were clearly looking for a certain answer. And I don't want, you know, the town council to say, well, you know, gosh, there's great results in this survey. It wasn't an independent survey. Let's do a true vote. And if the neighbors want it, then I'm, I'm right there with them. That's great. But let's make it a legitimate vote. Let's not just do the, you know, fingers in the air test. on that. I guess my pushback on that a little bit would be that in two and a half years, We've done surveys, we've done town halls, we've done over-communicated, I've done videos, we've done all these things and 16,000 people got this notification for tonight's meeting. There's what, 40 people here, 50? Well, well but this is for the ordinance, it isn't for the village. So, I mean, you know, we can't have it both ways. 
I have a comment that is related, but it's not specific to voting. And it was something I thought about when I was reading uh, the regulations, but it's the section that relates to the removal of the district. Mm -hmm. And it was my read that the district could be removed Absolutely. if 60% of the homeowners file a petition, which is kind of similar to a vote, right? So it, it's, if we, uh, what I think before, I mean, you know, you need to vote to get it in place. It's not, you don't put it in place and then make people come back and beg for that. No, but you could come well, up with that 60% before it goes to a vote is what he's saying. You're you saying 60% either would have to approve no. before it's, you're saying that if it's approved, it takes 60% to have it removed is what you're saying. Yeah, right? it's, yeah a, the, it's a related comment, but it's different. I acknowledge it's not the same as a vote. Right, it takes a supermajority to remove something. It should take a supermajority to have it implemented where those restrictions are currently there. I disagree with that, but we can we can agree to disagree. Sure, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, let me move on to some of the one-sided things I was mentioning. So. Let's say it's implemented. Let's say my neighborhood is subjected to some rules, whatever they might be. We talked a little bit at the last meeting on this, but the people who have standing to sue me for a violation include the mayor, the council, the planning commission, any neighbor in my in my neighborhood, um, a neighborhood association, whether incorporated or unincorporated, the historic landmarks foundation of Indiana, the state historic preservation officer, whoever those folks are. So anybody can sue me if I paint my fence the wrong color. This is in the statute or the ordinance rather. Um, that party doesn't have to have alleged any sort of harm. So if they don't like me, we got to you know, an argument over something else. They can sue me over my fence color. And if they're wrong, you know, that's no problem. There's no, they can't, they can't be found to be, you know, have damaged me. There's no financial damages there. But if they're right, I have to pay their attorney fees. If I'm right, they don't pay my attorney fees. I mean, that's, by definition, a very one-sided portion of the statute. I mean, in most cases of law, attorney fees aren't provided. I mean, they're very an unusual being a debt collection case. We have a little guy who's getting bullied by a debt collector. If they win, they can get their attorney fees, but they're not paying the attorney fees to the debt collection company. It's meant to protect the little guy, not the big guy. You know, here, I mean, we know the town likes to you know, hire lawyers. And so, you know, if the council sees me, the mayor sees me and hire, hire, hires these big name law firms, I'm on the hook for those fees if I lose that case. You know, if I hire my lawyer and win that case, you know, I walk away with a big attorney fee of my own. I don't pay your fees. I mean, it should be reciprocal of anything. I would argue there should be no attorney fees provision whatsoever. But I mean, I think this really speaks to how this thing is drafted. It's all every single example here. It goes against the homeowner. There's a provision on changing a venue. So if I'm getting sued by my next door neighbor, who's the court clerk, I can't request a change of venue outside of this county which in any other case you can. If you're not entitled to a fair trial, you move the case. I mean, the judge can say no, but I can't even ask for that here. Why, I mean, why are these really egregious or uh, dr draconian limitations put into this ordinance? It's criminalizing the homeowner. I mean, make it a neutral thing and it's fine, but we don't need these extreme. So remember what we talked about earlier? This is just the guidelines. It's the final draft of the ordinance that controls the, the rules. No, it doesn't. I can't sue anybody with this ordinance. Nobody can sue anybody with this ordinance. Well, no, it, this would, so we would put into place the rules for my neighborhood. And if my neighborhood's rules, if they say I can't paint my pet screen, and I do that not knowingly or whatever else, then this is where this comes in. And you could sue me and I you, I would pay your attorney fees and all that. I, I guess I hear what you say and I'm not arguing with your concern of process. You know, mm -hmm. I understand the point that you're trying to make. I guess I'm just wondering what the question is. I mean, I'm here to answer people's questions and I understand maybe you're making a comment about 
uh, well, what's the question of is, ordinance, but what's the question? Well, why, why are attorney fees only owed to the prevailing party if it's the plaintiff, but not the homeowner who's the little guy? I mean, it's a very one-sided one way of drafting that portion of the provision. What was the thought process there? I think we're, again, we're following the state law here as to how state law is written. Um, can that be changed so that it's neutral or I mean, it's the prevailing party regardless of which side Well, it is? again, the state law applies to many other communities in the state of Indiana. And we're talking about Zionsville. We're talking about the, the state does. I mean, this is a Zionsville ordinance. Well, no, you said, can we change? I thought you meant no, the change state the draft. law. No, no, change the, gonna, draft, change the draft ordinance so that either there's no provision of attorney fees or it goes to the prevailing party regardless of which side it is. But if, if a judge finds in favor of one party and that party is, is now uh, able to collect attorney's fees from the violating party, why is that wrong? Well, the way, so the way it's written right now, if someone sues me for doing something wrong and that person wins, I would have to pay their attorney fees. Okay, I'm saying not, if the judge not, has found you in the wrong, I don't understand. Well, that's not that's... normal in the I mean, under U.S. law. It's very rare that attorney fees. Like if I punch you in the face and you sue me and you win, I don't pay your attorney fees. I pay you for your medical bills or whatever else. But if I paint my fence screen and you sue me, I pay your attorney fees. Attorney fees are only available in the U.S. if it's provided by statute, which this here does. On the flip side, if you sue me and I win, you don't pay my attorney fees. So my issue is why doesn't why doesn't it go both ways? Why does you know? So if you sue me, I'm gonna I'm done. I'm not gonna fight you because if I lose, I pay your attorney fees, but you don't pay mine if I win. It should go both ways, or nobody should get their attorney fees. Is my point. The first thing you'd have to do is violate the ordinance. Right? Allegedly, I mean, there, you know, this is all well, just because you sue doesn't mean there's never a presumption of wrongdoing. But the the ordinance is designed to protect structures from being demolished, right? And so changing any physical any physical changes whatsoever, including destruction. That's one of them. Well, so number one, I'm not an attorney. Are you an attorney? Yeah. So this might be a conversation that's better had with another attorney, but I'm here to talk about the design, right? So I can tell you as somebody who's seen structures demolished and altered that you can pretty much see it, right? So this ordinance is designed to protect existing structures and if the intent is to protect those structures and that district's put in place, that's what the ordinance is designed. So it's not really, I think you're taking it to mean um, it's protect. It's not protecting the homeowners, but it, what it is is it's not protecting the person who demolishes a home uh, historic structure. And, and I agree with your statement, it's true, but the purpose of this ordinance is to protect the structures. So that's why the enforcement penalties are written in this way, because it's designed to actually fundamentally deter people from destroying historic structures. And this is a financial penalty for doing so. So that's why it's written that way. And as, as Mark said, it's based on the State Enabling Act. So it could be changed. I think that this question is really a question for the town's attorney though. No, I don't think anyone on the panel tonight's an attorney. So I don't want to respond from in it about the, the legal uh, ramifications about enforcement. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense. I mean, my only point is, is that in 99% of the law, attorney fees are not provided to the prevailing party. And they're, if they are, they're provided to the little guy if they win, not the big guy. And so I'm only asking that this be consistent with that. I'm not against 
a framework that allows for historic ordinances to be put or districts to be put in their place. And that's fine. I'm just saying, yeah. let's make it a little playground. Let's make it so the homeowner isn't going to be up against attorney fees if they lose, but they don't get their attorney fees if they win. Um, can you tell me exact? Can you point out, or do you have that in front of you? What section? These are section fourteen. 14. Okay. Right. Yeah. It is in there exactly as. as yeah, I mean, to your point. Out. I mean, I totally. Yeah. If I go knock down my house and it's a whole beautiful home, I get that. I mean, if I'm a horrible actor, there should be accountability. But the way that this is drafted, any violation of these historic district rules, if it's violated, could trigger these provisions. And I, we're, oh, we're reasonable people, we would never do that. But it also allows my next door neighbor to sue me. And we don't know if he or she. She's right there. She's not a reasonable person. <laughs> <laughs> but that's but, the thing, drawing that line between who is horrible and who isn't. I mean, I mean the point very, is, if that's a court's decision. No, it's not. It's not. allowed to, it, it's, pre, it's to be given to the prevailing party. It's not at the court's discretion. And so, I mean, just to give a very quick illustration, I paint my fence screen. My neighbor on 15 North Main. Thank you guys for your help and all your work. Um, got probably three or four things here. Um, so I'll try to keep it in question form. Um, so I know you talked about this is a guideline. So my question is, because this is a guideline, can you, will you put a box in here or a paragraph in here saying nothing in this document is construed as mandatory within each commission. So the Hunt Club Commission have to use all of this. They can pick pieces and parts out that they want because if that's not possible, uh, I, I don't support any of it just for the simple fact of um, sections 14 and 15 uh, all of this litigation talk is to me ridiculous. And so <clears throat> these commissions need to be able to use an a la carte approach and pick out of here what they want. I understand some people may want it, some people may not. So my question is, can you, will you put in a section here that exclude or makes it possible for these commissions not to use sections 14 and 15 or any other section? I can't do that on 1415. I don't want to speak for Mr. Delosi, but I don't know how you take 1415 because then everybody can just do whatever the heck they want. Okay. Then there's no point of having an ordinance. That's my opinion. You guys tell me. The, the, the question that I would ask, well, so I, I think it's implied, right? The, the idea that they're going to enact a, an ordinance for any district once the commission is um, formed. I think it's implied that sections of this may or may not be included, right? I mean, whether we put that in or not, it's the truth, right? They all sections don't have to be included. We've well, heard that from everyone here. That's the next step in the process. I would so, feel much more comfortable if it were in writing. Fair enough. <laughs> but the thing I was going to say on the enforcement, right, is I, I would ask a question is, I mean, do you want any enforcement or any penalties? No. So I think if the town council would decide to take me to court over something major, if I elect to change out my my um, lights on my garage, do I think the town council would take me to court over that? No, I don't think so. Is it my advantage to keep my house, which is an older house, 1880? I want to keep it that way. And I think 
most people that came up in September, of course we approach, uh, we want that approach. But when you start talking about litigation and neighbors suing, and I may have someone from Spring Knoll sue me because I removed a bush or they don't like my fence, that's ridiculous. You know, I, so I think it needs to rise to a level of a town council taking me to court. But for neighbors and renters and other owners, that's, that's crazy talk to me. So I think, I think it needs to be documented in here that they get to pick, pick and choose out of here. I, I just have a question for you. How would you possibly take out section 14 or 15? I have no idea. There's no point for an ordinance. If, <laughs> if somebody demolishes a historic house, for example, yeah. and there's no 14, 15, there's no ability for somebody to say, yeah. so. Okay, so you let me ask you this now. then. Okay. Will you delete item um, let's see, section two? Um, item G, will you delete one, three, four, five, six, and seven, which would then say the town council can take me to court because I don't see the benefit of the state historic preservation officer taking me to court, the historic landmark foundation taking me to court. And, and I, I don't know if everyone here realizes that's what could happen, but that's what could happen. So my request is, would you, can you take out those? If you're looking at me to make the decision, I am not a decision maker on okay. the town council. Okay, I'll look, I'll, look, I'll look at Joe then. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I again, this, you've it needs the, to rise to the level of litigation, something serious. One of the other neighbors brought that up. As yeah, well. no, I, I agree. I, I think the we talked about earlier is I gotta have the lawyer look at this. Uh, we bought that home about a year ago with the intention of restoring it. We love the village. I, um, I admire a lot of what is going on here and what you're trying to do by preserving it. Yeah. We want to do that with the home that we bought. And we're, we're working with Todd uh, Rotman right now, trying to make sure we do things that are uh, pleasing to the neighborhood. Um, the biggest concern that I have and the neighbors, several of the neighbors that I've talked to, I, I came up because I heard somebody say just because of one person. Well, we're not just one per, I, there's more than one person that's genuinely concerned about the litigation and um, we kind of put the brakes on what we're doing with 445 until we see what's happening with this, right? Because I feel as somebody coming in that's going to make a rather significant investment and improve the property, the genuine concern that I have is what people are capable of doing, not what your intentions are, all right? It's, it's the way the documents are written. And it, I'm not going to point out just one specific clause. There's, there's several of them, right? And it's the amount of exposure that I would feel, as well as many others, uh, that we would have if there's a bad actor on the other side. It does make sense to, you know, for attorney's fees or whatever, 
Uh, not that I'm worried about getting sued right now. I mean, I'd like to think I'm going to make everybody happy, but I'm not. Okay. And um, with as good of inten- intentions as we have, I don't think it's possible for anybody to do that. And if we've learned anything over the last couple of years in this polarized world, we can't, we can't all get along. Right. And if you're allowing people to do things uh, based on the content in that document, there are going to be people that will pull a trigger on that. And it's, um, you know, I want to be fair too. Right. Uh, but we're all different. And the, you know, an interested party, not allowing their attorney's fees to go back and forth, things to seriously consider. And, and that's why I can't, I want the neighborhood to prosper and the people to invest in it uh, for all the reasons that I, I, I mean, I want to do it, but I can't do it with this document and I won't, I won't support it the way that it's written now. Thank you. Lived here for five years, have four little rug rats, uh, definitely running around and enjoying our uh, small village environment. Um, my, my, uh, I guess this, I was always confused about this, I guess. I thought that the ordinance was actually something that we were moving forward with. And I just, my own little, my confusion, I guess, is I guess I'm hearing two different messages because I'm hearing that it doesn't matter and I'm hearing it does matter. And I think there's a lot of my neighbors that are confused as well about this, right? So um, those of us who aren't, you know, certified attorneys and don't know all the language. Uh, some of the words in here are a little scary um, and, uh, you know, endorsing it is a little uh, impactful, right? I mean, cause you're, you set the tone, you build the roads, you have the place of your government, right? So you let us go places and tell us not to go places. And so some of the things in section 14, it's like, you know, I don't think anybody's saying eliminate the penalties. I think the concern is all of the penalties, right? And I don't know when the right time is to bring up questions. You know, it's there's a lot of support uh, for in the community to protect the architectural integrity of the history of, of Zionsville and the history of, of the village. I think all the surveys and the things you've heard are around that. The support is, yeah, let's preserve the things that are great. But when, you know, you actually get into the wording it doesn't say that to me as I'm reading it, right? Not everything. Some of it's okay. We're protecting the integrity. There's, you know, that's the intent. Clearly, the intent I think is good. But I guess so. My question after that little diatribe is, uh, what like when's the right time to weigh in on the specific language? Is there a vote to the language? Is it we we wait till there's a historic district and then we involve ourselves? I'm just looking for guidelines from you guys as to when my opinion's going to have an impact. I think your impact, your opinion has an impact right now. I, I, I think there are two really good points tonight about the interested party. I got my notes that I think that is a very valid from Mr. Hall. I even emailed him back today. I think that's a very, 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 you know, important thing we probably need to talk about. Um, and I also think that the, the, the fees for litigation on both ends that's that's a valid point can i, can I add one too yeah. uh to that list is uh the somebody pursuing illegally before the action occurs which is 14d if you read 14d a neighbor so you know there's this uh enablement of bad behavior which i think is is just a concern we don't want to make it easier for people to do bad things and if somebody drive the way i'm reading it if somebody drives by my house and they see i have blue paint cans on my front porch 
um, and they didn't see that I got my certificate of what is the word? Appropriate. Thank you. Certificate of appropriateness. That I did not get that. That I could get pursued legally as as a neighbor. That's the way I read that. And so I just you know I don't a guideline. I get the point of we want to give a lot of leeway to the local historical preservation society, right? To do what they want. I understand. I've heard that a couple times from you, and I understand it. Yep. But what under what circumstances that okay? That somebody could drive by my house and just you know, do that. That's how I'm reading it. So if, if it's not the way it's written, then that's okay. I understand the concern. I'll make a comment. It's similar to one that I made earlier, right? And I I find it to be very unlikely that you're going to get sued or that someone would come to the town and say, this person has paint cans on their porch and that would blow up in the way that it's being talked about tonight. What this to me says is if somebody has a bulldozer on a lot and they're about to demo a building that we can stop them from doing that, that the town can stop them from doing that, or, you know, an interested party could well, observe, and, could and observe the those. interested party thing is really a big deal. So yeah. just to emphasize that, there are a couple of other people that yeah. mentioned that. I think if the interest party is you guys, is the government, sorry, I don't know which, because yeah. <laughs> they're is the government, uh, you know, then I think that says something different than just anybody can do that. So suing people should be hard to do. It shouldn't be easy to do. I mean, it should be, you know, like that should come from uh if it's a city thing it should come from the city i think you know just that's my own two cents but um you know i, I have yet to uh, I, I can't think of a, a reason why that's a good idea a couple of things so i'll be real brief because i feel like i'm beating a dead horse but the interested parties uh making me very nervous and i feel exposed on that um not that attorneys are bad but what would stop an attorney from being very entrepreneurial and hiring a couple of interns to go out and find out what the ordinance are in this town and start bringing up whatever cases you can and we'll get billable hours. Uh, I think we're exposed on that. And then down into the minutiae side, uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned. We talked about the, the historical or ordinances would typically raise the property values. Um, I'm looking at the certificate of authenticity process. We, I think the last meeting you were estimating about $800 to, to file that claim and get that through. So the homeowner that is going to buy a lot and redo the house all one shot $800 is not that significant to the total project. But if I'm doing my house colors today, my siding to next year, or my windows the year after that, all of a sudden I've got five, $6,000 in fees just to get that approval and do a yearly project. And, and so I'm concerned that that's going to slow down the maintenance and upkeep of the village. Uh, for the people that are not coming in trying to do a one and done, but just trying to keep the authenticity of their properties up and, and doing a yearly maintenance on that. I don't know if you've got any uh, data to support whether that occurs or not, but uh, definitely I think a point that we need to take into consideration. No, I think that's actually a very, very good a point, but that's a lane. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing, that's a lane uh, answer. Well, and, and that previous answer was generated when this effort was squarely focused on the 580 some odd homes that were comprised of the 2021 survey that appears on the town's website that was paid for by a couple different parties and, and completed by Sullivan months. And so what we did to calculate that $800 fee, again, just an estimate, and that is also at, on the assumption that the town council's strategy to fund this this project, this ordinance, this, this program is to have it fee neutral. So we took the, the activity over a 24, 24 uh, month period, 
uh, looked at that area, compared it against the addresses. I thank you for your work. And one thing that I want to point out is that this is the town hall meeting. And so the process going forward, as I understand it, is that there'd be a first reading for the town council meeting, second reading for the town council meeting, at which point you would vote on the ordinance um, whenever it's redrafted or whatever. And for those people in the audience who don't know, the town council meetings are the first Monday night of the month and the third Monday morning of the month. That being said, I'm understanding that anyone can request a permission to speak at the town council meetings, if you don't know that, and um, any concerns that haven't been addressed by the redrafting would be heard by the town council at those meetings. I just want to point this out to people in the audience so they understand that there is a process by which um, you operate and I appreciate it. Um, one of the things I would ask is when it's redrafted, how will that be made public? That's a good question. Well, you have the current yeah. draft on your website. Yeah, I can just leave it in the same spot. Right. So I would say like draft number two or something right. like the that. The new, new draft. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I know, Joe, that at the um, Monday night me meeting, it was Monday night, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> you suggested that you'd like to have the first reading at the next meeting. Yeah, March 21st. March 21st. I'm not sure. Unless something catastrophic was asked tonight that I would take us a while to research. Right. But so far, the questions are reasonable, and I, I think right. it's something we can go So back people on. may know, be on the lookout for the 7.30 a.m. meeting on March 21st. 21st. Yes. And that would be the first reading. So if you wanted to be public with your comments, you'd have to request to speak uh, three days ahead of time. And there is a procedure to do that through the town clerk's office. I'm a little leery. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely for saving old houses. Mm -hmm. Definitely, no doubt about it. You know, I don't wanna see, see that happen. But at the same time, I err on the side. I mean, I don't, have a lot of money. I chose to pay for my kids' colleges. I their PhDs and their nursing schools and everything else. Therefore, I live in a very tiny house, and I don't want to be a charity case. I don't want to have to go to the commission and say, "Oh, you know, no. I, I can't afford to put in these nice windows," sure, or "I can't afford." I, I don't. I don't want to be a charity case. I don't want to have to go to a commission and say, you know, I've lived in this house and now I can't really afford it because of this commission we've got going on here. You know what I mean? That's, I don't wanna, I don't wanna have to do that. Um, so it, it, it's a little scary to sign off on something that I don't know what I'm signing on. You know, I wanna, I want to preserve old houses for sure. But the upkeep and, you know, some of the other issues that we don't know yet are hard to sign off on when you don't know what you're signing off on. Yeah, you're just signing off on a commission right now with guidelines. <laughs> I know, but we with these guidelines, and we don't know who those people are that are gonna then. You know, yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't place. know just like Azaz or. 
I'm sorry. I said we don't know that yet. Yeah, no, right. No, yeah. I mean, you don't know who any of the commissioners are going to be. I mean, exactly. I'm on the police commission. I have no idea who's going to be on it next year. You know what I mean? Larry's right. on a couple of commissions. Right. He may yeah. not be next year. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You but, yeah. But I understand that. And jobs come and go, but our home is our home. Yeah. You know, we want to stay there. We like where we live. We like our house. We like our neighbors. But I mean, you know, I guess for me right now, it has to be a no until we have more information. What more information do you need? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, you're you're telling me if I want to tear out a bush, I have to pay $800? No, no, remember, this doesn't, this is nothing. This is the guideline. This is to create a commission. But who's to say that that commission isn't going to approve me saying I need to, I can't just go buy a light fixture. The commission is not creating, the commission is not creating the ordinance. The district, whoever from that district is requesting an ordinance will go to that commission to present what they would like that district to be as far as following that district specific ordinance. So somebody else is still making the decision for what I can do to my house. What? It's not approved. I'm just saying they can. Right. If it's approved. Like, uh, right, right, right. This nice lady here, she said, well, what if I just had one farmhouse? Well, that one farmhouse can go to this commission and try to get it approved. If the neighbors don't like it, they can speak up. It's yeah, just sure. like any other ordinance or Maybe. petition or commission. I'm thinking one way of explaining it, which I think everybody probably understands, but um, this is an enabling the types of things that a historic edition. A district could regulate uh, the commission could regulate in a district but the district hasn't been established I understand that this is a framework a guide to what could be set up in terms of a historic district or multiple historic districts um, having been around Zionsville for 45 years now I've seen this place grow and it hurts me to see a lot of these old homes torn down because that is the soul of what this town is. Okay, we have good people here and that's part of it too. But the soul of the town is the village itself. My concern is that if we get too far into this and develop these historic districts, which part of me wants and part of me doesn't, from the standpoint of have several families in this town that have lived here forever, that are now on fixed incomes, that may not be able to afford to take care of their homes because of fees that they may have to pay to change their house color from gray to white, or to change the landscape, or to make a small addition. Maybe because some of these older homes only have one bathroom and maybe three bedrooms, so they want to do a small addition. Well, how much is that going to cost? How much are they going to have to do in that? So part of what needs to be taken into account here, and I realize that it may not necessarily be part of the framework, but for people to think of when it comes to voting for these historic districts, it's how are we going to be able to price people and keep them in the district as opposed to forcing them out because they no longer are able to afford to live and maintain their home in that district. So is there any way that that can be addressed? I, I mean, my only comment to that is I completely agree with you. I mean, I wor I've worked for a nonprofit my entire life. I am not a wealthy person and, um, you know, the amount of 
f- available funds that somebody has to be able to reinvest in their property is should be at the forefront as we uh, think about uh, how we can provide assistance to these folks. Like I said, I work in other communities where what we've been able to do through the commission is set up uh, grant programs that we can make available to property owners to use to offset the costs that they have to uh, invest into maintenance of their properties. I had a grandmother who we had to build the ramp for her home to be, for her to be able to get into. You talk about people that, uh, um, about people that would have concern as to whether or not, you know, an individual would sue another neighbor. <clears throat> the only time the family could get together to build that ramp was on Sunday. We had three police calls called to our, called to that house because we were building a ramp for her on a Sunday. And it violated a noise ordinance or it violated this. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you don't think that there are people out there that will maliciously go after somebody just because they don't like them or make it difficult for them to do something because they don't like them. Look up YouTube. There's plenty of examples of bad neighbors up there, you know? So I, I think that one thing that we have to consider is yes, I want to con- to keep the historic portion of this town. It pained me to watch that 145 be tore down on, on Main Street, you know? But when it comes down to it, What's the town if you don't have the people to make it the historic district that it is? You know, the buildings are part of the soul. The people that made this town is part of its soul. You lose that. What are you left with? Yeah, I, I, I mean, just speaking for myself, I, I don't disagree with anything you've said. Interim protections allow the town, the historic commission, to regulate and restrict property use on anything it so designates. And it stays like that indefinitely. Sorry, I don't remember. Section six, I don't know the page numbers. The whole thing? Yeah, the whole thing is on interim protection. Uh, page six, section six, interim protection. That's the one. And some of this is to a process, maybe to the calendar issues that people have mentioned earlier. But I don't see anything in this about sort of the process in the calendar that stops this from being an indefinite designation by the com- by the commission with no actual vote by well literally anyone i think except if the commission so chooses to vote internally and that could stay there indefinitely because there's no sunset there's no clock that says the town council has to act on this map that's been put before them within 30 days or something it could just sit there right correct and yeah, I mean, I'm not okay. Gonna, just, mostly, just clarification. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to tell you something that that isn't accurate. I mean, it's, it is such that if the commission were to place a structure under interim protection, it would stay there. Now, the one additional thing that you haven't mentioned is that when you place a structure under interim protection, it must move to designation. So you're not just placing it under interim protection for five years, inconveniencing somebody, and then it goes away. You are indeed moving to designation. Or so, rejection. I think from my perspective, what we're wanting to do is the warning needs to protect the property owners, not make them exposed. Um, so um, by saying that anybody could sue me as a property owner, that puts me at risk. And we already heard a couple of examples of, I don't want to make any changes until I understand what my exposure is. Right now your exposure is wide open. If you think they violated a term and you're interested, 
file a lawsuit and I'm protected. Yeah, and I think I think this would also I mean it, it doesn't this anybody could do that. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? So that's that's what I'm, I'm saying. saying. Yeah, let's word it so it's not occurred you know. Is everybody okay with the end let of the... Me, let me <laughs> ask a question of this crowd that I'm hearing, that I'm, we're hearing from. So what if Joe goes back and talks to an attorney, an actual attorney, <laughs> and, and they say that striking number five altogether, where there's no reference to legal action by your neighbors uh, or anybody in any other district for that matter, um, but the others remain intact. So the town still has the ability to take action if there's some outright violation that there's an outcry in the community about, that they can still do that. Um, but it removes the whole concern about fellow property owners taking that action. I don't think they're trying to remove it. They're trying to keep it within the district that, that well, is. I think, I think I'm taking it one think step further. Still, yeah, I think you're going to refer to Mark I mean, I. This is like seventy percent of what we've heard about tonight. Isn't that? Oh, we're opposed to the uh, preservation ordinance. It's that it's the legal. Yeah, the legal. Know, so I'm going to get sued side. over this somehow. And I think if we just take that off the table and leave in the other, because I'm sorry, but there has to be interested parties involved because people are interested. You're here. Uh, and there has to be enforcement to be able out, to be taken. Someone can still sue you. You can't just take, you know, so I don't think there's a problem taking that out. Because someone's, they can always sue. There's always one. So taking that out. Yeah, I'm, but I'm just wanting to feel the room. Does, do people generally feel like that's okay or are there concerns? You might need to also take out four under the same logic. Because well, we're not changing other parts of this. No, I'm just the, saying. The unincorporated or incorporated neighborhood associations that are in or are not in the same district, the one immediately above it, seems like you could just get together with another one of your neighbors and declare yourself a neighborhood association well, and still have the same standing. So I'm just saying, by the same logic, you might want to strike five. You might need to go after four, too. I'm not, well, I'm not suggesting yeah. striking five, just so you know. Yeah, I'm not recommending. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm recommending what was just recommended the same historical district. Okay. That is going to be my recommendation. If people want to come back, well, maybe someone has a better selling point. But then if someone wants to go back to the first reading or the second reading, more than welcome to. I'm just taking recommendations and I'm going to, I think that the same historical district makes complete sense. And I could talk to an attorney about four. We'll see. And you're on the district. Too. You're you're on the commission too. That's all. Yes. Uh, I don't have any questions about the attorneys. I think the only thing this has shown me so far is that we live in a town with a lot of lawyers. <laughs> so that's great. I I do have a couple of questions just regarding this specific ordinance and a few things that have been said that I want to clarify <laughs> as things have changed since the September meeting. One of the things I keep hearing is if we get a district and i understand you can't answer specific anything for a district since nobody is yet making said district one of the things is if the village gets a district and i have to come to you for my historic home to change windows i think when we started this 
nobody in the village said, I want a historic preservation district for the village. They said, I want a conservation district for the village, which my understanding was it focused on demolition, <laughs> moving a home, new construction, and one other thing I'm forgetting. What is the? Those are the three. There's three, okay. <laughs> um, I just wanna make sure that we as the village still have that opportunity with this ordinance that if we decide to come together as a group of people from the village to say, I don't want to regulate what type of windows I put into my existing home, we don't have to follow that path. Correct. We don't have to be subject to those costs and those fees if we don't choose to be. So we can say we want to protect historic houses by only focusing on demolition of historic homes and new construction on these historic locks. Is that still something we can do? Has that been changed, modified in any way? Nope, no, no, ma'am. It's, it's in here. Just okay. that way, you have a. It's sort of. Uh, it, it's called a conservation district, as you referred to. It's just those three things. If that's all any particular district wants to do, that's all they have to do. Uh, if you want the fuller historic district that also reviews alterations to the exterior of the structure, then you can include that as well. Neither review anything on the interior. So nobody's going to ever say, you know, plumbing, do I have to approve for that? Or what paint color I paint my walls on the interior of my home. So nobody, nothing on the inside. Okay. So for example, if I have an 1880s contributing home currently in the village and I want to change my siding or paint it or replace my windows, if this were a conservation district, as you called it, for our district, we would never have to come to you for approval? Correct. Okay, would we would never have to pay fees. Well, your building contractor, I'm assuming, would right. have a Permitting permit fees for that. If they're needed, but we wouldn't need to pay the right. certificate of appropriate. So this would not be cumbersome to us in any way as existing property owners of historic houses in the village if we do a conservation district, right. which we still have the opportunity to do. That's what I wanted to make sure. <laughs> Um, I think my second question was, if I own a house in the village that is not historic and I want to make those same changes, just to clarify, I same thing. I don't need to come to ask for any approval. I don't need to pay any fees unless I'm going to completely tear my house down and build a new one. That's the only time I would come to this commission. It, you're in a conservation district? Yes, in a conservation yeah. district. Uh, or if you were doing an, like an addition to the structure. Okay. This quick. I, uh, I'm a lawyer. I've been one since 1976. I have never sued my neighbor. Uh, I have no intention of suing my neighbor. And frankly, I couldn't afford myself if I did sue my neighbor. <laughs> I know that if I went to court that Courts accord administrative actions the highest respect. They generally do not second guess them. So as a practical matter, I'm not gonna take a case where I have the Board of Zoning Appeals or someone else has made a clear decision that's founded upon the law. Judge is gonna lap me out of the court and maybe hit me with sanctions. I'm not gonna take a pro bono case unless there's something really egregious so I don't walk into court just because I enjoy it. 
I don't walk into court so a judge can beat me over the head along with the other attorney. So I know, and attorneys are responsible for this as well, that there is a feeling that anybody can sue anybody. Well, constitutionally, that's correct. But as far as doing it, that's a big step. I turn down more cases than I take on. I turn down good cases because of the practicalities. I don't want my client to be madder at me than they are at the other person. You want the ribbon for most of these. I do. I do. I had 94 windows. Oh, wow. That's a lot of windows. That's a record. Well, I, I do want to say thank you to everybody. I think the, there's a lot of great feedback. Definitely I, the, the three big ones we'll, we'll talk about and be sure to be on the lookout for that to be put up before the 21st, not the 20th, but before the 21st. And even if it is like the 19th, it's just the first reading. No one's voting the first time. Okay. So um, I think the three of us and you know we just need to get back in the room probably this week or next and hammer this out because otherwise I, I think it's pretty pretty clear cut um you know and I think I think I keep on picking on Mr. Hall but you know it, it, it you are right you can't go back right so once this is approved you can't it's hard to go back and I also like I know they don't do this anywhere else but I gotta think how we write this but you're right. So someone could just say, okay, that we're just going to create this district and copy this exactly how it is. And they could, but that has to be approved by a lot of people. You know what I mean? So they may not let me put that wording in there that you're asking for Mr. Hall, but I, I do see your point. My, and it's, you know, it's, uh, there were a lot of good points tonight. I think they're all doable. I think they're all, not all, but they're, I think it's doable. I think, I think definitely the section five, um, with the same historical, um, it's, it's pretty big. I think that's probably, probably smart to do, but you know, I'm not an attorney. So we'll see what they say, but I think, thank you everybody for, for your time. I know this, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, meant a lot to you guys. It means a lot to me and, and I really appreciate everybody coming out and I would encourage you, the gentleman already left, but that wants to know when he can talk um in, in front of folks but you you definitely have the ability to do that in uh the first reading second reading so and you know it, also please email me you know uh I think mr hall emailed me two days ago and i emailed him right back within 24 hours yeah so i i'm remember at, at the end of the day i had a group of folks that came to me that said they wanted this and it's my job and that's in my district or at least half is in my district so I'm just trying to give them the platform and the ability to move forward with that request, just like anybody else. And I would hope that any of your other council people uh, would do the same for you in outside of those districts. So um, you know how to get a hold of me. You know where I am. I've lived here all my life. I've known John my whole life. Um, and, and the Stacys I've known my whole life. I think I've known John my whole life, but I can't remember how we, we crossed. And uh, so, and I, I meet some of you in weird airports in the middle of the night and lose your kids. So I'm, I'm an entrenched, I'm entrenched uh, into this community just as much as everybody else. So again, I want to, Mark left and, and Chelsea's here, but a lot of, a lot of good help, a lot of 
a lot of people put a lot of time into this, including the four of us uh, sitting right here. And, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're not getting paid to come up here and, and fight for this. We're, we're doing it because, you know, someone asked us to do it that had a, uh, put a lot of due diligence into it and, and time. And, um, you know, I, I, I think in my opinion, I have enough uh, information here to at least get us to a, a new, new draft um, of this, uh, you know, this preservation commission. And then, then we can see how it goes with the, the first reading. And I would encourage all of you to feel free to come talk at that time. Okay. So I, I really didn't intend to go so deep into that specific topic but it just intrigued me this this idea of historic preservation at at some cost to personal freedom and it reminds me of my time in the orchards I I was working for the National Park Service I was an intern so I actually didn't officially work for them Um, but I I was tasked with helping to maintain historic orchards right and you know I found that the intent was stellar but the execution not so much you know and I know that in that little area where I was um, you know these orchards used to be managed by the ancestors of the locals this is this is Wayne County Utah and there was still a lot of animosity that these orchards had been taken away, taken out of private ownership, and were now being managed by the national parks. You know, I might even say mismanaged. Because the irony of it was, we had this mandate, this mandate to uphold historic management practices. In other words, we cannot, we cannot use any techniques that were not historically used. But the irony was that we couldn't actually implement the strategies that were historically used because they ran counter to other regulations in the park service. You know, the historic management practice would have been to graze the orchards with cattle. Well, we couldn't do that because the cattle weren't allowed in the historic district of the park, even though they were historically there. And we couldn't even bring in manure because historically they didn't spread manure. 
the cows did. And you see the, the catch-22 here. You know, we couldn't do anything new, but we still we couldn't really do anything old either. In other words, we couldn't really do much of anything except let, let the orchards die. And I love those orchards, but they are kind of sad. You know, unless something changes, I don't know how they're going to look in another 50 years. Because the soil is being depleted and not being replenished. And it's just one example of sort of the counterintuitiveness of preservation efforts, shall we say. You know, when it comes to this town, this this village of Zionsville, you know, why is it so historic? Well, it's because the people that have lived there have done a fine job of preserving it. You know, up to this point, they've they've managed without any commissions, without any additional layers of government. If you didn't gather, that's that's pretty much what that whole spiel was about: was implementing another level. You know, not an HOA, not a town council, but something somewhere in between. You know, a historic district or a conservation district, depending. And it's just interesting to note that people have these these objections, these hesitations, and the the town councilor is constantly saying, you know, in, in essence. Well, just trust us. We're not gonna, we're not gonna fuck you. Just trust us. You know our intent, our intentions are good. Don't you see? We just want to keep the historic quality of our village. Well, you know, I just can't help but point out that nobody was forcing them before. Yet they've maintained this beautiful little village. If anything, if I have my story straight here, they've actually rejected becoming a town because they want to maintain the small government, the small nature of things. So to to impose another level, even if it is well-intended, is something they ought to be leery of. You know, I think they all have these these instinctual feelings that something about this doesn't seem quite to our advantage, right? Now, in my opinion, as a fucking libertarian anarchist, I believe if you buy a historic home you have every fucking right to bulldoze the shit out of it if you want i don't i i that's your property man but at the same time you know i believe in the right to self government to self 
you know, sort of selection. So maybe I wouldn't live in a town like Zionsville if this was the direction they were going in. But you heard people talking about how they, you know, they, they live in a place with no HOA. And if this historic district becomes established, is that in effect going to be an HOA? Is that going to strip them of the ability to, I don't know, start a small homestead on their three quarter acres where, you know, what are the rules about gardening and about, you know, chickens and, you know, there's a million questions. To me, the answer is simple. Don't do it. You know, no more layers of government. No more telling people what they can and can't do with their own property. Let the neighborhood self-regulate. You know, the National Historic Association or the whatever has no right to sue these people. I know I, I just scratched the surface of this issue, but again, it, it, it ties in to me with this, this notion of one man's trash is another man's treasure. Now, I'm not saying either is right or wrong. You know, if anything, by, I guess you could put it this way. Say, say there's the, the, the fixed income elderly folk who's lived in the 200 year old house in Zionsville and they couldn't necessarily afford to keep it in tip top shape. And if this commission comes in, then they're, they're going to be forced to leave because they can't afford the upkeep. So what does that do? It, it, it opens up this property to only a select type of person who can afford to fix it up exactly the way the commission deems appropriate. I found that funny. Certificate of appropriateness. <laughs> Good thing I don't need one of those because I'm never appropriate. But the point is, if the commission doesn't exist, you know, the old person lives in the house and, you know, their family, their their neighbors help them limp the property along until they can no longer live there or until they pass. And then that property is opened up to any number of types of people who might want to take on the project of a historic home or who might look at it as a derelict and bulldoze it and build something new. I don't know which is better or worse. You know, in the case of the schooner metropolis, I think it's pretty cool that my great, great, great uncle took these old pieces of shipwreck lumber and created something new with them, created a livelihood out of it. You know, to stay so entrenched in the historic value of something, which maybe has no more or less value than what it was, what it is. You know, what is a house? What is a boat? It's wood and nails, you know? And if, if 
The time comes that the house has outlived itself or the boat has run aground. Is the right thing to preserve it for an indefinite amount of time? Forever? Is do you think that's even possible? Or is the right thing to take that space and those raw materials and shuffle it back up and create something else? To me, that's up to the individual property owner to decide. It's not up to the town. It's not up to the fucking government at any level. But yet we voluntarily put ourselves into these predicaments where we add increasing levels of complexity to our daily decision-making. Instead of deciding on the Saturday, you got nothing to do, the sun's shining, I'm going to go paint the fence. Oh, fuck. I forgot to file for a certificate of appropriateness. I guess I'll have to wait a couple weeks. Like, doesn't that irritate you? Like, do you own your property? Do you own yourself? Does anybody own the ship that went under? Should it be made illegal to repurpose those shipwrecked timbers? Or should we let the fucking zebra mussels chew those timbers into oblivion so that in a hundred years nobody can enjoy it anyways but in the meantime we've lost the opportunity to create something beautiful with what previously fell apart you know it's it, it kind of ties into this idea of entropy Everything is in a constant state of decay. It's the second law of thermodynamics. And to ignore that fact, to say that we're going to preserve something for its historic value without recognizing that there is a cost. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Let it ride. You know, when something loses its value to one, it may become valuable to another. But when we lock it up, when we place all these artificial rules on it, we take away the soul of what it was. You know, these orchards I worked in is kind of like nursing somebody through hospice. You, know, you can tell these orchards are dying. But we, you know, we'd spend time in them and we'd enjoy the fruit that 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 it would continue to produce and you know, in all reality, if nobody touched those trees, they'd keep producing for another generation. But without active management and without adaptive strategies, 
without breaking some of these fucking rules, they will die. That historic house cannot stand forever. You know, we can do our best though. And I think we do our best when nobody makes us, when nobody forces us, when nobody says you have to or you can't. Or you can after paying us a fee. That's almost the worst one. You know, it's like anything that's punishable by a fine is legal by a fee. Just depends on how you look at it. So this one's getting a little bit a little bit long. I think I've said what I need to. You know, when it comes to like how to apply this idea, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. At a very basic level, like keep your eyes open for for booty, right? For treasure. I love garage sales. I love yard sales. You know, I found some of my coolest clothes at Goodwill. You know, I part of me thinks, y'all, that like this is a skill, sort of the the scavenger skill, right? I've heard it said we might be heading towards a rubbish economy. And that's not to say that the economy is garbage, but that there will be ever more economic opportunity in the rubbish, in the recycled, in the upcycled. <clears throat> you know, being able to take something that has lost its value to someone and create something of value for someone else with it. This is something that I do. You know, I, I often will take things that are given to me by clients. They just want them gone. Pieces of furniture, you know, wood pallets, just stuff. And I'll either find a use for it or I'll at least take it <laughs> to the dump and turn it into money for me by charging a dump fee. Talk about trash to treasure. I don't even have to keep the trash. I can just take the treasure. You know, I'm definitely at the point where I'm just rambling now, y'all. So with that, I, I encourage you to <laughs> become a bit of a scavenger. All right, y'all. That's all I got. Not my best sign off, but fuck it. I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. This has been Mike the Polymath with the Easy Peasy Podcast. Come back again. <laughs> <laughs>